I've been looking forward to this time for several months now since Pastor Mike had booked me. But uh, welcome, we're glad you're here. Uh, out in the foyer, you'll find, here's the brief uh, advertisement, the only thing we'll do. You'll find some brochures about Strategic Renewal Canada and a little bit about what we do. You've heard that in the introduction already uh, by way of some of those things. But uh, we're just very thankful for what God is starting to stir across our land. Uh, and so you can pray for us. We'd appreciate that. It's a brand new ministry in our nation. I've been part of the U.S. speaking team for over a decade as we launched together along with some friends of mine south of the border, things like the 6-4 Fellowship and those kinds of ministries. Uh, but then last year, or a year and a half ago, I was off for a few months to seek the face of the Lord. My elders were hoping I'd come back with a whole new fresh direction for the church, and I came back with a whole new fresh direction, period. Uh, I told them I was going to be resigning as the pastor of the church, and I was going to step out and launch a new ministry uh, and do this as we try to encourage and coach and mentor and and it's been great. We've enjoyed what the Lord has been doing. And so please pray for Strategic Renewal Canada. Uh, part of our goal and desire as we raise support for the ministry uh, is to be able to underwrite the cost of taking the coaching to a lot of the smaller churches across our land where the pastors can't afford either the personal coaching or the corporate coaching. Uh, and so we want to be able to help underwrite that. And that I take no salary uh, from the ministry. Uh, it's not that I'm independently wealthy, unless you get the wrong perspective after pastoring all these years. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Good. Uh, and uh, I just saw him sitting down here. Uh, and so uh, it's that I retired. And so I'm paying myself to do this. Uh, and so a friend of mine said to me one time, retirement is doing what you love to do, and you do it for free. So that's really what I'm doing. Uh, and so any honorariums that we get, uh, all those kinds of things go right back into the ministry. Uh, of course, for some of you that have been in this church for a long, long time, one of your pastor, former pastors called me the other day and said, please say hello. So if you remember a troublemaker by the name of Jim Turner, he says to say hello. Uh, so Jim has been a dear friend for many, many years. But we've come this morning to seek the face of God, to ask him to do a kingdom work in our lives today. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, whether that's in paper or electronic, I'm going to invite you to turn to John 15 with me this morning. John chapter 15, we're going to look at just five verses of Scripture, and there's six things that we want to see out of those few verses of Scriptures as we ask some of the questions about how do I live my life to make maximum kingdom impact? How do I live that life to influence the people that are around me for the glory of God and not for the credit of myself? And so Jesus is speaking in John chapter 15. We pick it up in the middle of the narrative at verse 7 where he says these words, that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Well, let's pray together once again. Father, as we come to your word now, we simply ask that you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, would teach us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us. Do in this place what only you can do for your own honor and glory. And we ask this in the precious name of Christ. 
Amen. How many of you would say you're competitive by nature? You like to win. You know, I've never, how many of you need to confess lying? <laughs> you know, I've never met anybody who was training to come in second. You know, we, we train to come in first. We want to be winners. Uh, we're competitive by nature, primarily our fallen nature, but we are competitors. Uh, you know, I have been convinced that the guy who came up with the slogan, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game, was a loser. That's why he came up with that slogan, uh, because it does matter. You know, and we live in a day where everybody gets awards just for participating, and we have to teach our children how to lose, because they're not always going to be win, but they need to learn to compete. And so when it comes to the kingdom of God, how do I live that life for maximum impact? You know, I don't want to come to the end of my life and someone say, well, we really don't know what he did. You know, poor soul. You know, I want them to come and look at my casket or my urn, whatever it's going to be. You know, whatever's cheapest is what it's going to be. You know, um, you know I come from a Scottish heritage, so... Uh, you know, I think my wife just heard the other day that she could donate my body to science, and that was free. Uh, so who knows what will happen. Uh, but, you know, I want them to come to, when my life is done, for people to say, you know, he, he competed for the kingdom. He wanted to make an impact. He wanted to live life for the glory of God. He wasn't happy in second place. He wanted Jesus to be first and for people to see him. Jesus is speaking to us in this passage of Scripture about how we make impact for His kingdom. Notice He says, if you abide in Me. Well, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does it mean for us to be there? And so we can use words like it's Christ-centered, that our life is going to be so focused on Jesus, are so focused on who Christ is, that He is the preeminence in our life. And that's what the Scriptures teach us in the book of Philippians, so that we want Him to be foremost in our lives. What does Jesus Jesus think. I remember the day my wife and I met. Now that's 40 years ago this year. I remember the day we met. I remember where we were, what she was wearing, all the events around that, that surrounded that evening. See, I had been invited to go to this little church outside the city that I grew up in and to sing as part of a night of music. And an older gentleman from my church and, and some other young people from our church went out there, and, and that's where I met my wife. And on the way back home, I was asking him questions about her and her family because I wanted to find out if they were good enough to associate with my family. Uh, and so, because that night I was smitten. I, I was struck. And every young man and every old man in this room knows that when we go to court a lady, we do all the homework we have to do. Because most of our wives didn't like us when they first met us. <laughs> They just didn't. And so we wanted to do our homework and find out what's her favorite color? What's her favorite food? What's her favorite flower? What's, you know, all of those wonderful things so that we can impress. Because if there's a chance of a second date, it's based off the first one. And so it's, in a practical sense, it's asking this question. What's Jesus' favorite color? What's his favorite food? What's his favorite flower? What are the things that bless the heart of our Lord to be centered in on Jesus Christ? If you abide in me where we stay in his presence 
and absorb all the blessing he has for us. I've had the privilege of teaching in Russia many times and training pastors there. And when I got to Russia the first time, I noticed that they were tea drinkers. And they had their cups. Uh, they really didn't have mugs where I was. They just had like drinking glasses. And they'd fill them full of hot water and put their tea bag in it. And I noticed there were two types of tea drinkers. And there's probably two types of tea drinkers in this room this morning. Now, everybody knows that coffee is the superior drink. But for those tea drinkers in the room, there are two types of tea drinkers. The one who puts their tea bag into that hot water, and they got their pretty little string, you know, and it's, it's potpourri is what it really is. And, 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 they, and they dip it in and out because they're drinking all these flavored teas. And they dip it in and out. And then they take it and they put it on the spoon and they tie the little string around it and they draw it and get the last drop and... And we're going to call those people the dippers. <laughs> now, their tea is never going to get any stronger than what it is at that moment. That's just the way it is. Then I noticed there was this other kind of tea drinker. They put their tea bag in the hot water, and they put it in there, and they stirred it around in there, and they left it there. We're going to call them the abiders. What happens to their tea? It gets stronger. The longer the tea bag sits in the hot water, the stronger the tea gets. The longer we sit in the presence of Christ, the stronger we get. We need to be abiders. However, most of the church in North America, I'm convinced, are dippers. We want to jump in and out of his presence. We want to show up to church when it's convenient. We want to study our Bibles when it's convenient. We want to do good things when it's convenient instead of sitting in the presence of Christ and allowing him to make us grow strong in our faith. If we want to make maximum kingdom impact, doesn't matter where we are on the age continuum, we need to abide in him. So Jesus said, if, my, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, we need to be people of the book, people who study the word of God, people who know the word of God, people who want to know what God thinks and I saw this fascinating picture on Facebook the other day, and I thought, isn't that so true? See, I'm on Facebook every day. I'm more of a stalker on Facebook. Uh, you know, I post a verse of scripture every day and wish my friends happy birthday and put pictures of my grandchildren, you know, because, I mean, that's what you have grandchildren for, right? They're, they're the benefit of not killing yours. Um, and so you get grandchildren. And so that's really all I do. But there was this picture of this guy praying and he's got a table sitting there with a Bible on it. And he's saying, God, please speak to me. He did. He did speak to us. He's given us his word. Now, when I was a younger pastor, I was one of those right-wing conservative legalists. And this was a club to beat people with. It was how you kept them in line. Uh, I mean, I was so bad. I remember looking at a fellow in our church one time and from the platform telling him it was time for a haircut because real men don't wear long hair. You know? Now I'm just jealous by that. You know? uh, and so it was a club. But a few years later, as God started to do something wonderful in my life, I discovered that this isn't a club. This is a collection of love letters where Jesus writes to us and tells us how much he loves us and how much he cares for us and, and, and how he wants us to honor him. I've known a number of veterans over my life because I was raised in a military home. And I talked to some of those 
those elderly gentlemen on, especially on a Remembrance Day Sunday when they would come to church with their chest just covered with medals. And I'd ask them how they treated letters they got when they were off in the war. Oh, they said, Pastor, it was special. It was precious. I, I didn't just read it once and put it away. I read it over and over and over again. And I made sure I kept it in a safe place so that I could pull it out when I was feeling lonely and alone and read it over and over and over again. Folks, this is a love letter where Jesus tells us how much he loves us and that he loves us so much he went to the cross to die in our place that if we would put our faith and our trust in him, he would forgive us for our sin, make us his very own, and we would be the king's kids. But to know that, we need to study his word. We need to percolate it and allow it to cause us to grow. So if we abide, we stay in his presence and his word abides in us. We're going to be students of that word. We're going to reflect on the love letters of Christ because he answers all of the questions that you and I have. Then we'll make a kingdom impact. So if my words abide in you, Jesus goes on to say this, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, does that really mean that I can ask God for anything and he's going to do it? Well, of course not. Because if it really meant that, then there wouldn't be any poor people in this room this morning. Because we'd all ask God for a million bucks. We'd say, if you give it to us, I promise I'd tithe it to my local church. Never tithed before, but I'd try it this time. Of course. No, that's not what it means. It means if I really stay in his presence... I'm abiding in him. I'm, I'm growing stronger and his word is in me and I'm understanding the mind and the will of God that I can ask whatever I want and God's going to answer it because it's a prayer that comes right out of the scriptures. And when I pray back the word of God to a holy God, he will answer that prayer because he is bound to because it's his word. And so in the context, Jesus is speaking about those who have spent time in the presence of God. And so I'm not going to ask God for things that are ridiculous. I'm going to ask God for things that are important. When my son was about 16 years of age, he decided he really didn't like much being a pastor's kid. We lived in the city of Fort McMurray. I was the pastor at Fellowship Baptist Church there. And he decided that he was going to rebel. And that to rebel, he needed to make sure his friends knew that he could be even worse than they were. He helped my prayer life significantly. We did everything in our power to fix him, but it didn't work. And I remember the night in our worship-based prayer service at the church that we came to the place, my wife and I, as part of a group as we were praying together, where we knew that we had to surrender him to the plan and the will of the Father. And we said this, Lord, do whatever you must do to bring him back to yourself. Whatever you must do. But please don't kill him. Because honestly, I wanted that pleasure for myself. <laughs> you know, and so, but we had prayed, you know, Lord, don't kill him, do whatever. And that was the only thing. We have to trust God. And so we can ask whatever we want. Now, I know that the will of the Father is to bring the wandering sheep back home. So I can pray that with confidence. 
I have no idea of the timeline that that was going to take. It took years. And then to see how God started to work in the heart of our son and draw him back to himself. And so today we're thankful that our son and his wife and their baby that's going to be a year old next month are in church regularly and starting to see God do great things in their lives. So if you abide in me, we stay in his presence and my words abide in you. We're people of the book. We're anchored that way by, to his word. Ask whatever you want. We will be a praying people. Now here's the problem. There's hardly a church anywhere in this country that has any form of a prayer meeting, any form of a prayer strategy, any of a desire, because those of us that are older that were raised in prayer meeting went, know that it was always on Wednesday night. And prayer meeting looked like this. We sang a couple of hymns. The pastor did a 30-minute Bible study. We took 20 minutes worth of prayer requests. And, oh, Brother Bill, we're out of time. Would you close the meeting with prayer? And that was the cue to read through the list. And so, Father, please bless me, bless me. You know, that's not a prayer meeting. That's a Bible study with 20 minutes worth of prayer requests. A prayer meeting is when we're not doing Bible study, but we're praying back the Word of God in a worship based manner. So we teach a worship-based, Bible-led, spirit-fed prayer time where we seek first the face of God before we ever seek his hand for what he can do for us. But most of us have only ever spent time asking God to do things like he's some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. God, we need you to do this. The only time we talk to him is when we want something. I mean, wouldn't it be sweet for those of you that are parents of teenagers? your teenagers came to you and said, oh, dad, you are so awesome as a dad. You get, you get us a nice home. You drive a nice car. You buy me clothes and food. And you take us out to eat Sunday after church. And you do all these things. Dad, you are so good to me. Is there any chance I could use the car tonight? <laughs> sure, son. Here's 20 bucks for gas. Because don't you just get really tired of your kids coming to you saying, can I have the car? And then you go to get in the car and there's no gas in it? Don't you think God might see us the same way? Because all we ever do is ask him for things instead of just worshiping him and enjoying him. Focus on the family tells us that the average pastor spends less than seven minutes a day in prayer. The average church person spends less than three minutes a day in prayer. Now, honestly, I can spend more than three minutes giving thanks for a good steak. You know, can't you? I mean, I went on a cruise with my kids here a little while ago, and I walked into that dining room for the first night. I was thankful. I spent more than three minutes in prayer right there. We need to seek the face of God. We need to be a praying people. And so part of our desire and role and job as a ministry now is to try to come alongside churches to ignite them to seek the face of God. That's why Strategic Renewal exists, to help the local church seek the face of God so we'd be people of prayer. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. I need to speak fast so you listen quick, okay, because we need to be done. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If we're going to make kingdom impact, we need to be fruit-bearing people. We produce fruit for the glory of God. 
Now, I personally believe this statement has two applications. One would be the application back to the fruit of the Spirit. If you were to go over to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and look at that nine-piece fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, long-suffering, you know, those things. And that's part of the Spirit of God's job to produce that in my life as I abide in Him and as His Word abides in me and as I seek His face. The Spirit of God is going to produce that fruit of the Spirit in my life. I'll become known by that. But it's also... I believe it applicable to us to say that the fruit of a believer is another believer, that I am to do the work of the evangelist. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the church. Now, some of us are evangelists by giftedness, and others of us are not, but we've been all commanded to do the work of the evangelist. Sun Life Ministries tells us, on average, it takes 5.7 believers to lead one person to Jesus Christ today. And so it's a group effort. But I need to be a fruit-bearing person. The, the, the result of my life is to produce fruit, to see other people come to Jesus. Now, I can't make them come to Jesus, but I can share the gospel with them. I can live a life in front of them that builds a trust relationship that allows them to come into my life where they're not just a spiritual notch on the belt that some are going to reject Christ. I've got a dear friend. I've witnessed to him for 30 years. He's never trusted Christ. He's rejected Christ on every turn. Wants nothing to do with it. It was raised in a godly home. Parents were wonderful people. When I was a kid, they used to take me to Sunday school when we were at the beach together. But he wants nothing to do with it. Now, I didn't stop being his friend because of his rejection. He's still my friend. And I'll still look for new opportunities to share Christ with him and to love him into the kingdom of God. To bear fruit for the kingdom. Let me ask you this. Who are you sharing the gospel with? How are you building relationships with your neighbors? Are you one of those neighbors that's building the bigger fences instead of lowering the fences down and creating ways to connect with people? To love people that are difficult to love sometimes? When my wife and I have moved, every time we've moved, we've asked God to find us a home that was surrounded by lost people. And people in the churches we were going to, I was like, oh, pastor, you should buy a home in this neighborhood because all of these people from the church live here. Why would I want to live next to church people? That's a double-edged question, isn't it? <laughs> Some of you aren't that nice to live next to. You know? I wanted to live next to lost people. One, they usually have more fun. You know, but, but I wanted to build relationships with them. Just a little while ago, I got a note on Facebook saying, Hey, Lindsay, look at this. It was a young couple that we had prayed for as they bought a home next to us that they would come to Christ. And we witnessed to them and shared the gospel with them. And we never saw them come to Christ when they were our neighbors. And then God called us away. And a few uh, years after that, uh, she came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then last year, he trusted Christ. And she sent me a picture or a video clip of his baptism at a church in Red Deer. I mean... What a thrilling thing to know that we weren't there at the harvest moment, but we were there at the planting time. My dear friend John Moore, the evangelist who wrote the hymn, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary, planted a fruit tree years ago in his backyard in Richmond Hill. And he said, I, Lindsay, I did everything I was supposed to do with it. I talked to it, I pruned it, I watered it, and it didn't produce fruit. The next year I pruned it, I watered it, I talked to it. And it didn't produce fruit. The third year, he looked at it and with that wonderful Scottish brogue said, you produce fruit this year or you're coming out of the ground? You know, because he planted a fruit tree for fruit, not for an ornament. 
God left you here, if you know Jesus, to produce fruit, not as an ornament. Everything else we do as the children of God, we're going to do better in heaven. The only thing we can't do there that we get to do here is win people to the kingdom. Fruit bearing. Then he goes on. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. We need to be a love-motivated people. What motivates you to do some of the things you do? Is it a genuine love for Christ? Is it a love for the neighbors? Is it a love for the way people look, think, drink? Or is it so that we can get something from them? I ran away from home successfully the first time when I was five years old. I wanted to live with my grandparents. My dad was in the Navy. I really didn't get to know him until I was a teenager when he got out of the Navy. Uh, but he'd get a land posting every few years, and we'd go and live with him. Uh, wherever that was and then he'd go back to sea and at that point in the navy you'd be gone to sea for a whole year and so we'd go back to Moncton New Brunswick and live with my grandparents and so we had moved to Cornwallis Nova Scotia and anyways to make a long story short I hid in their car when I knew we were far enough away that they wouldn't turn around and go back home I popped out from underneath the luggage in the back seat and said I'm here uh, and they stopped at a payphone, and uh, now you younger people need to Google that to find out what a payphone is. Uh, they stopped at a payphone, uh, called my folks, said, we found him, we got him, we're keeping him. And I lived with my grandparents for the next several months. I was one of the original homeschoolers. Uh, I went to school every day at my grandmother's kitchen table. And my grandmother would say to me, Lindsay, would you take this over to Mrs. McFarland? See, dear old Mrs. McFarland was a widow lady who lived across the street. Uh, and... And my grandmother would make bread or pickles, or it didn't matter what it was, and I'd go. And people in the neighborhood would say, isn't, isn't he a nice boy? He goes over there and he spends hours with dear old Mrs. McFarland. Here's what nobody knew. Mrs. McFarland had the biggest box of chocolates I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> and every time I went to Mrs. McFarland's home, she opened up that box of chocolates and said, Lindsay, help yourself. Any boy in his right mind will spend time with an old lady with chocolate. <laughs> it had nothing to do with my love for my grandmother or for Mrs. McFarland, but everything to do with my love for chocolate. <laughs> May I suggest that our motivation as adults is not necessarily a lot different than I was as a child. We've just learned to cover it up better. But our motivation needs to be the love of Christ. With all the traveling I've done, there's been times when I've literally prayed, Lord, please, if the seat next to me on the plane could be empty, I'd really appreciate it. For two reasons. One, this body really wasn't built for economy. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's where it needs to travel. Um, and I'm trying to get work done. And, you know, sometimes you get that neighbor who they just want to talk. And it's one of those late flights when you're going home. And when I was still pastoring and doing some of this, I'd be out doing a Friday night, all day Saturday thing, getting home Sunday morning at 1 o'clock in the morning to preach multiple services on Sunday. And, and I'd be wanting to touch up my message on the flight. And, the, and, and every time I would pray, Lord, please, if some, he'd put somebody in that seat every time. So I've stopped asking for empty seats. And, and I was on a flight not long ago, and there was this young lady standing there. And I thought, here's a... Here's an attractive young gal who has dressed so poorly in terms of just, I mean, short, short skirt, low, low top. She desperately needed to be ministered to. Well, by God's grace, he put her in a seat next to me. And I had a whole flight where she can't get out. 
to share with her. Why? I didn't know her. There was nothing about her that would cause me to instantly want to love her. But because of my love for Christ and his love for her, I am compelled to share the love of Christ with her. We need to be motivated by love. Motivated by love. The last point we see here in verse 11 is these things have been spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If we're going to make maximum kingdom impact, we need to be a joyful people. A joyful people. C.S. Lewis said that happiness is in our control. Joy never is. See, happiness is temporary. Joy and happiness are not the same word. We use them in our English language many times interchangeably. But it's not the same word. Lots of things can make us happy. You know, I mentioned one earlier. Barbecued steak, medium, baked potato, sour cream, I'm happy. You know? Took my grandson the other day, for those of you that are friends of mine on Facebook, took my little grandson to Tim Hortons the other day, gave him his first sour cream glazed donut. Um, sour cream glazed donut, that makes me happy. Uh, because as a diabetic, I'm not supposed to have them. You know? uh, but I can share it with my grandson. You see, that's a good thing, right? Lots of things can make us happy. But happiness is different than joy. Happiness disappears on the dark nights of life. Happiness disappears when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Happiness disappears if we wrestle with depression. Happiness disappears when the doctor calls us and said, you know, you got to come back to see me because you've got cancer. Happiness disappears when you get a phone call from your father and he says, you know, Lindsay, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of the hospital and I'm living on this side of the country. He's in the East Coast. And I said, Dad, I'm going to get home just as quick as I can. But if I don't see you here, I'll see you there. He said, okay. And I get to the hospital and I sit with him and for a week I sit and I visit with my dad and I talk with him every day and, and my dad was a disciplined military man so I said to him dad uh, would you like me to go downstairs to the Tim Hortons I wasn't diabetic then it probably helps now that I am I, I said dad do you want me to go down to Tim Hortons to get you a Boston cream donut that's your favorite donut in all the world and he looked at me and said that's not good for my cholesterol <laughs> now I confess I have a warped sense of humor uh, and I looked at my dad and I said like, who cares about your cholesterol? You're dying. <laughs> he said, you're right, buy a dozen. <laughs> and so I bought a dozen donuts, and he and I drank two coffees and ate a dozen donuts. The next morning I walked in, he said, I like Kentucky Fried Chicken today. <laughs> okay. I gained 10 pounds watching my dad go to be with Jesus. A week or so later, my dad d passes away. There was no happiness but there was joy. I could stand by his casket at the front of the church and share with people. I could stand up at his funeral service and deliver a remembrance of my dad and reflect back on the night when I was preaching an evangelistic crusade near my home. My dad came every night. And about the fourth night, I think it was, he publicly stood to acknowledge Jesus as his Lord and Savior. See, there was joy because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There was joy because my dad wasn't suffering anymore. He died far too young from my perspective, but he died right on time according to God's. And so in the midst of the hurt, the heartache, the pain, the grief, the loss, there was joy. We need to be a joyful people because joy draws people in. I had unsaved friends who started to ask questions because they saw the joy 
in the middle of hard time. Hard time. So how do we make kingdom impact? We stay in his presence. We abide. We focus on his word. We become people who seek his face and pray. We produce fruit because we're living out of the overflow of abiding in his presence. We're motivated by the love of Christ for a lost and dying world. And as a result of that, there is much joy in our hearts and in our lives. Let me ask you this question as we close. Are you making kingdom impact? Are you living your life for the glory and the honor of Christ more than anything else? Or are you sitting here this morning and you'd look at me and say, Lindsay, I need to be renewed in my spirit. I need to be revived. I haven't prayed in a long time. I haven't really studied my Bible. I've not been a joyful person. I've not shared Christ with anybody in years. But today, I want my life to count for the kingdom of God. If that's you, in a moment I'm going to pray, the worship team is going to come and lead us in a great song as we close. I'm going to encourage you just to come down front here and seek the face of God. I'm going to be right over here. If you'd like me to pray with you, I will. But if you just need to come and say to the Lord Jesus today, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how I've been living my life and I want to live it for you. Why don't you just come and kneel here and stand here, lay here, do whatever you need to do to make it right with Jesus today. Father, we're asking you to do now what only you can. Draw us as your people to renewal, to repentance, for the kingdom's sake. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing.